start my motor running. Golden Head out on the podcast. <laughs> Excellent. I think in the latest intro, I mentioned Golden Roads, and Tim was listening. He's like, what the f*** is Golden Roads? <laughs> what do you have Golden Roads? I'm like, look, man, there are bike shed inside phrases that we use. Inside baseball. Actually, the most recent intro is just you saying, I'm going to talk like this. <laughs> I did hear that, and I had mixed feelings. I was like, oh, God. <laughs> That's the thing. You got to be careful what you say into the mic. I just did a version of you saying that for a demonstration, <laughs> but now I said it in a recording like an idiot. <laughs> You would think I would learn this lesson, but I refuse to learn it. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Steph Vicari. And I'm Chris Toomey. And together, we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. Hey, Chris, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How about you? Uh, doing great. I am coming to the end of sabbatical life, and it's going to be hard to let go. But I'm also kind of excited to get back. It's hmm. it's mixed. That's good. That's probably the ideal spot to be in. Like, vacation was good. You enjoyed it. You experienced it. But also a little bit of like, I could go back to things that aren't just snowboarding all the time, which sounds really delightful. I could do for a little <laughs> bit of that. Personally, I'm on the other side of the whole thing, but... Yeah. Have you ever been skiing or snowboarding? Yes. Not for a few years now, which is surprising now that I think about it out loud. But in college, I did a good amount. And then some after that and sort of tapering off in the years that followed. It's not an important thing in my life. So I don't necessarily reach out. And you have to plan it. And it's expensive. And it's a whole thing. And you have to wake up very early. And you mix all that together. And consistently, my answer is like, "Ah, maybe sometime, but not today. Yes. Oh my gosh. It is. It's so expensive. That part is a drag. Like once you invest in it and you have everything, but the lift tickets, all of that is a lot of money. As for the getting up early part, I'll let you in on a secret. I sleep in and then go to the mountain and then I just do a half day and it's lovely. Oh, that sounds magical. When you have the like whole week and you don't feel typically when I go, it's for one day. And so I want to make sure I'm getting the maximum out of that one day. And so as a result, I want to be there when lifts open in the morning, especially like with the sun and it going down and all of that. Like I hate skiing when there's shadows on it. I'm not a great skier. And so like ice will, I'm not a friend of ice and shadows are not my friend either. So I want like just perfectly manicured, untouched trails as early in the morning as possible, but I don't like waking up that early. It's it's a lot. You can see why I don't ski that much. Yeah. Well, that's a fair point too, that you want to be on the mountain all day because again, back to the expense of it. So yeah, you want to optimize all of that time on the mountain. I feel you. But since I don't leave my house, I can share fun code things that I've done this week, which uh, simultaneously I have started a Rails 6 upgrade of an app. So going from Rails 2.4 or 5.2.4, something like that, whatever the current of the 5 branch is, upgrading that to Rails 6. And simultaneously, I have started a new Rails app. Uh, and that one's on 6.1 or whatever the current is. But fresh Rails new, uh, deploying it to Heroku, setting up DNS, doing all the fun things. And so I'm, I'm experiencing both of those in parallel, which are really interesting to have both going on at the same time time but it's very enjoyable and both have been good experiences mostly there's little things that i run into that are always frustrating but at the same time the experience is solid and thinking back to i don't know 10 years ago when it was very hard to get things onto the internet it's much easier now i'm curious what's your workflow when you are starting up a new rails app are you using the thoughtbot suspenders to get you up and running do you have your own specific version like you know exactly what gyms you want to start out with what's your workflow I typically will start with suspenders, but I'll look at it and rip some things out and add some things in. But suspenders is a good default in my mind for just brings a bunch of things like rack canonical host is one of those ones that I'm almost always going to want. 
And so knowing that, I'll just go with suspenders. But then from there, there's a bunch of tweaking and things. Actually, the one thing that I added pretty quickly on in this app, I was configuring email sending and that whole workflow. And what's really annoying is when you're in development and you need email, particularly password reset. So using password reset, it sends the token via email. I can technically go and like get the token off of a user or something else, but it's really nice to actually be able to simulate that flow in development. But I'm not going to send emails from development because that wouldn't be a thing that's good to do. So the thing that I've reached for in this case is letter opener and the accompanying letter opener web. So what they do is they basically capture emails as they're being sent in development mode and instead expose them via web UI. So like if I go to slash admin slash mail in this app, any email that was sent or triggered to be sent is now available in a little list there. So it's like I have a mini email inbox and I can see all of the things that were sent. And so for the password reset, I go trigger the password reset and then letter opener web. I see that I can click on it, click on the link. And so I don't have to think about anything else. And it gives a very nice sort of discoverable UI there. That's really neat. I'm trying to think back. I don't think I've used letter opener. So I actually just opened it up to take a peek at it because that sounds really helpful. So one of those things that I there are certain projects that I'll work on where email flow is a big part of what we're doing. Something happens in the app and then we want to trigger an email that should ideally bring a user back in and then they make some changes. And then later we do a follow up email and all those sort of sequences. I end up spending a lot of time in the emails. And so it's a great way to just sort of simplify that workflow. But yeah, I feel like there are other similar tools, but this is the one that I've used and reached for it again in this case, and it it was great. Do you still get the styles that come along with it as well? So I'm reading, as you just mentioned, that instead of getting the actual email, it's going to pop up in your browser instead of getting sent. Do you also get to see the styling that you've included in your email? Yes. And I think for email, typically what I'll end up doing is adding... I forgot the name of the gem in this case. We can probably look it up and add it to the show notes. But something that's doing, I think it's pre-mailer is the one that I'm thinking of, where it takes a CSS style sheet and it pushes those as inline styles in whatever email you're sending, because email is still the very, very, very dark ages of using CSS. And so inline styles and tables, I believe, are the correct way to do emails. Someday someone's going to tell me that that's not true sort of like having hacks for IE11 or things like that. And someday that's now seems to be not true for IE11. At least I'm I'm really hoping for that. But uh, email still seems to exist in the long, long ago. But as a result, the styles are all inlined. And therefore, when letter opener shows you it, you're seeing the, the styled rendered form. Granted, you're seeing what your browser renders of that CSS, which is different than what Microsoft Outlook, which I think at some point was using Microsoft Word as the HTML rendering engine for emails. Which, as I say, it sounds nonsensical, but I think it's true. It's probably not true anymore, but I think it was true at one point. That's funny. I I don't know. I can't corroborate on that. But I mean, I, I believe it. If you say it, I'm going to go with it. Yeah, just to be clear, this is one of those anecdotes that shows up in my head, and I am not at all confident in it. I like it as an anecdote, and I kind of believe it because I want it to be true. But those are the most, I don't know, pernicious ones that are quite possibly not true. So yeah, I wouldn't bet on that. But uh, it's a story that exists in my head, and I enjoy it. So since we have the webs in front of us, and it's now a very important question, uh, I just looked it up. And you're right, Microsoft Outlook 2007, 2010, and 2013 used Microsoft Word to render the HTML of their emails. Wow. Presumably, future versions after that have not, and they've moved on to a more sensible rendering engine. But uh, yeah, that was a time. That was a thing that happened. Yeah, it's been a while since I've been in styling email land. I'm okay with that. I'll return one day. But I'm, I'm happy to have not been in that space for a little while. 
it's one of those things that I try and do and then forget about, like set up the template that has vague responsive things and like buttonish looking elements, but then almost make like a mini design system for the emails and then not have to deal with it rather than each email has bespoke inline CSS that I'm handcrafting. I don't want that. That's the bad life. I don't want to live that life. Same. <laughs> The one other thing on the email front that I did, this actually uh, is part of Suspenders, but I've configured it and, and set it up, is Recipient Interceptor, which is a gem by Dan Croak, who's former CMO of ThoughtBot. And what it does is it allows you to set a list of emails, such as like yourself, the main, the lead developer, and maybe the CEO of the company or whoever wants to receive the emails. And then anything that's going to go out in staging will actually go to those individuals. Typically, you can have like a prefix on the subject that says, this is bracket staging. And then you'll know... These are staging intercepted emails. Uh, and ideally, you don't want to be sending real emails in staging. That's the idea here. But you still want to be able to fully test. That's the whole point of staging is to have as production-like as possible. So we do want to send emails, just not to real people, only to fake people like me. So I have that configured as well now. Yeah, I've used that one in the past. And that one's really nice. That way you can do all the testing, but have confidence that you're not accidentally sending emails out to real people. Well, I mean, we are real, but you know... <laughs> Out to the rest of the world. I would love to find some sort of hybrid solution for staging where something like Letter Opener or Letter Opener Web, I guess I could just run that in staging. I don't know exactly how that would play or if that's technically feasible, but something like that feels like it would be really nice because as an app grows, there are more, say, like product managers that are going to be doing that. And we don't want to have every single email go to 10 different people because then it just becomes noise and they might filter them out of their inbox, but then they're testing a flow and they're like, why am I not seeing this email? And the answer is you have a Gmail filter <laughs> that you set up and you're hiding it from yourself. And I can just, I've gone through that sequence enough that I could see the value in having some sort of more robust solution that is built into staging as an environment, but I've not seen anything or really explored that. And I've not really felt enough pain to, to push on that any harder. Yeah, I like that idea. Yeah, just taking a peek at the readme for letter opener, it looks like that you're right, it doesn't work with a staging server, or if you're running it in a VM. And in fact, they recommend to use something like MailTrap or MailCatcher instead. But yeah, that's some of the high points of the new Rails 6.1 app that I have started. On the upgrade side, I was surprised by just how straightforward it was. I did have a couple of deprecations and a couple of things that I had to chase down. Mostly it was the game of bundle update Rails. And then Bundler said, sorry, try again. And I was like, Bundler update Rails clearance. Bundler update Rails clearance, other thing. And just kept adding to the list and trying to do a constraint-solving algorithm. But as a human, I felt like I had to do more than I wanted to there. I want Bundler to just be like, you can upgrade to Rails 6 if you also upgrade these five gems. I'd be like, yeah, do that, please. But that was not my experience. I had to, had to do a, a dance with Bundler, but eventually I got it. And then from there, a couple of deprecation warnings, fixed the thing in the test, and then the app seems to be upgraded. So it went far smoother than I thought it would, or far easier than I thought it would. Yeah, the, the bundler dance rings true for me, where it's always like, as you mentioned, you have to go through and upgrade each one and then see how it goes and run all the tests. So yeah, uh, bundler dance. But yeah, so I just wanted to share that as well, because it's been interesting and hopefully paves the way for me to do some interesting uh, database switching work. But we'll, uh, we'll see what future weeks hold for that. Uh, but yeah, that's what's up in my world. What's going on in your world? Yeah, I'm excited for more conversations around the database switching. That'll be fun to hear about. 
So up in my world, I have a little bit of a game that I'd love for us to play because I happened upon an article that talks about the etymology of a software term that I use all the time, but I didn't really understand where it came from and it had a really cute history to it. So it got me thinking, what other words do I use that I don't really know where they came from? So if you're game, I figure we'll play a bit of software terminology trivia and I can share the term with you. You can let me know if you're familiar with its history and then I'll share the history. How's that sound? Oh, I'm excited. Then we can score as I go and see how I do. And uh, yeah, it's fun. All right. We're, we're all winners here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but different degrees of winners. And yeah, no. <laughs> all right. So the first one is wiki. What do you know about the history of the term wiki and where it came from? I think the main thing that I know is it's associated with Ward Cunningham. I want to say he was the inventor of the wiki. C2 wiki, I think, is the like canonical one, but I don't know the origin of the term. And I don't know if that's actually correct about the author, but well, what what should I know? Well, following the game of whose line is it anyway, I'm going to award you 20 points because that's huge. I'm impressed that you know the person's name because, yes, it's Ward Cunningham is the person that coined that term. And as where Ward came up with the idea of calling it Wiki, it's named that after the quick shuttle buses at the Honolulu airport. So Wiki Wiki was the first Hawaiian term that Ward learned when he was visiting the islands and the airport counter agent directed him to take the Wiki Wiki bus between terminals. So that's where we get Wiki from. That is fantastic. Yeah, that was the first one that then started this trend. I'm like, okay, what else do I need to know? I can see how that one would have caught your attention and really locked you in. But I'm like, all right, well, yes, now I'm now I'm on a tour. So the next one uh, that we have is Cookie, which this one's a bit more ambiguous in terms of the history of it. I feel like I've heard several different theories for it. What theories do you know for the etymology, the history of Cookie? Hmm. I got like nothing. I know that we store them in a cookie jar, but I think that's just carrying on the idea of a cookie. It's not necessarily the reason for the name. I also know that we give cookies to a browser. And then the next time the browser comes back to us as a server, the browser brings us the cookies, which is not how cookies work in the world. (laughs) You give someone a cookie and they eat the cookie. They don't bring it back to you the next time to be like, I'm still me. I still know that thing you told me before. No, you eat the cookie. So I have no idea where cookie comes from. Unless you gave a really bad cookie. That's that's the only way I could see that you would get the cookie back. <laughs> I demand a better cookie. <laughs> <laughs> so this one's pretty fun, too. Uh, so the HTTP cookie uh, was coined after the term magic cookies, which already existed in Unix systems to refer to a token or a short piece of data that was being passed between programs. And then cookies became a browser feature when Netscape was developing an e-commerce application for the client, but the client didn't want the responsibility of storing parcel transactions on their servers. So instead, they asked Netscape and they're like, hey, could you find a way to store state in each user's computer? So the first use of cookies out of the labs was checking whether visitors to the Netscape website had already visited the site before. As for where magic cookies come from, that's the one that has a couple of different theories. So I just picked my favorite, which is the fortune cookie theory, which suggests that magic cookies is based on the fortune cookie because a magic cookie is a packet containing hidden information. Ooh, I don't know what the other options were, but that one feels correct, which is the most important type of correctness. So I like that. That makes sense. The other one that I saw, someone talked about the idea of cookies, like they leave a trail, sort of like that breadcrumb trail. I'm not sure that one seemed looser to me, but the magic cookies made sense for me with the idea of fortune cookies at all. That all worked for me. So that's the one I I chose. All right. So up next, we have Pixel. What do you know about Pixel? 
This is one that feels like I have heard it before. Something to do with like typesetting, typography, but no, I, I got nothing. The stories in my head are, are bringing up images like that, but I have no real information here. So what is a, what's the origin of Pixel? I was really surprised by this one because I've never really stopped to think about it. Uh, but Pixel is short for a picture and element. I don't know, maybe you knew that, but I wasn't aware of that. And the term actually comes from early days of broadcast television. That's all I have on that one. All right. None of that was what I had in my head. So there we are. <laughs> so far, I think I'm uh, like a quarter for three. So oh, yeah. That's, I meant to keep awarding you points and I've forgotten. <laughs> I was, I was pretty bad. excited to see how I was going to do in this. I assumed not well, but this is worse than I was expecting. So having a great time, though, and that's all that really matters. <laughs> all right. Well, we've got two more chances. So for this next one, this is CAPTCHA. So C-A-P-T-C-H-A. This one's less of an etymology, like the history of where it comes from, but it's more what does CAPTCHA stand for? And it's that process of where you're like, I'm not a robot. And then you're asked to prove it in some way by identifying cars in a picture grid or, you know, keeping up with the trends. You'd say, I'm not a cat. And then you're asked to prove it in some way. Oh, <laughs> the Zoom video. Yeah. With the lawyer and I'm not a cat. Yeah. A great thing that came out of these complicated times. You got it. <laughs> Based on what you're saying, I'm assuming it's an acronym, but I do not know what it is. Uh, I should really try to come up with a nonsensical acronym, but I'm not going to do that. What, what does CAPTCHA well, stand for, I assume, or otherwise mean? So it sounds really close to capture. I don't know why. So I was always like, CAPTCHA, CAPTCHA. Sure, that's that's what it's for. But it, it does. It stands for something. Uh, so it stands for Completely Automated Public Turing Test to Tell Computers and Humans Apart, which is just a mouthful. Yeah, that feels like <laughs> one of those uh, backronyms, like all Senate laws and things like that end up with a weird acronym for protecting everyone and making everyone happy. And it's like Patriot. Oh, okay. I see what you did there. You picked random words till you got it. But um all right. Well, that's what a CAPTCHA is, I guess. Good for them. That feels fair. Yeah. Now that you've mentioned it, like they backfilled it because it does sound so similar to CAPTCHA. All right. And for the finale, up next, we have spam or spamming, the etymology of where this came from, which is perfect since we were just talking about emails. It fits right in. I'm really sad that I'm getting none points for this entire quiz, but I don't know where spam comes from. I know there's the Can Spam Act which I think, again, was a let's be humorous in how we're talking about this, trying to prevent spam, but then canned. And uh, But I don't think that, again, I think that's much like cookie jar that came after. I have no idea where spam comes from. The canned spam act? I haven't heard of that. I'll have to look that up next. And to be fair, I wouldn't have gotten any of these either. This is why I'm sharing them, because I took the time to look them up and then learn something new. Uh, so for spam, not the can of cooked pork, but the unwanted message variety is derived from a 1970 Monty Python TV sketch. And in that sketch, a waitress is reading a menu where all but one of the items includes spam, the canned meat. And as the waitress reads the menu, restaurant patrons drown out conversations with a song that repeats spam, spam, lovely, wonderful spam. And the excess amount of spam is a reference to people being tired of spam during a period of rationing in the UK post-World War II. But then you fast forward to the 80s and the term spam was adopted to describe certain online users behavior who would repeat the word spam to scroll other users text off the screen. I think they would also quote other lines from the Monty Python skit as well. But spam was one of the popular ones. And then over time, the term was used to reference excessive repetitive posting and unwanted messages. Wow. I like that it is tied to Monty Python, much like the benevolent dictator for life idea with Guido Van Rossum and Python, although he has since stepped down from that role. So it was all the more humorous of a title at this point. But yeah, Monty Python. All right. Good to know. So again, just summing up my uh, my total there was uh, it was zero points. Yes. 
I'm giving you a thousand points because you played along and you knew War Cunningham and you just taught me about the the canned spam act, which I'm going to look up next. So this is fun. Thanks for playing. <laughs> Tot's a strong word. I just kind of said the words at you and you're like, that's a thing. I'll go research now. So uh, but thank you. I appreciate the points that you are awarding to me. So thanks for playing software terminology trivia. That's a bit of fun that I had today. I was looking up the etymology for all those terms. And I loved, I just love it when like these terms that we've been using all the time have these more historical or just unique references. It just brings a lot of joy to me when I find those odd references that otherwise I wouldn't have known about. Yeah, thank you for uh, putting that all together. That was fun. And now a quick break to hear from today's sponsor, Scout APM. Scout APM is application performance monitoring designed to help developers quickly find and fix performance issues without having to deal with the headache or overhead of enterprise feature bloat. With a developer-centric UI and tracing logic that ties bottlenecks to source code, Scout helps you quickly pinpoint and resolve performance abnormalities, like N plus one queries, slow database queries, and memory bloat, so you can spend less time debugging and more time building a great product. At only $39 a month, Scout's real-time alerting and weekly digest emails let you rest easy knowing Scout's on watch and resolving performance issues before your customers ever see them. Give Scout a try today with a free 14-day trial by visiting and experience firsthand why developers worldwide call Scout their best friend. And as an added bonus for Bike Shed listeners, Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. Learn more at scoutapm.com slash bikeshed. That's scoutapm.com slash B-I-K-E-S-H-E-D. Thanks again to Scout for sponsoring today's episode of The Bike Shed. There's a specific topic that I'd love to talk about because off mic, you and I were having a conversation around productivity and how we really have like focus time and avoiding distractions and how hard that can be. And then you had some really useful ideas and tips for then how you schedule that focus time and then how you when you recognize when you're most productive. And so I just wanted to have that conversation here because I'd love to explore that a bit further. And in particular, there's a book that you've referenced to me before that I haven't read yet, but it's by Cal Newport called Deep Work. And so that's on my reading list. But I'd love to know your thoughts more in, in that space and how you approach finding focus for your work. Sure. Uh, yeah, happy to sort of have a conversation. And I, I don't remember what I said. So hopefully I'll say similar things or there will be something useful and, and definitely interested to hear more of your thoughts on it. I think probably the most pointed thing that we were talking about was structuring the day in terms of sort of depth of work or depth of complexity. Uh, I have definitely found and especially more and more over time that I am absolutely at my best in the morning. I'm freshest. I'm able to tackle more complex things. I find that work that was sort of a struggle at 4 p.m. one day, if I pick it up the next morning, the pieces just seem to fit better together. And so I've really tried to push meetings into the afternoon insofar as possible, because personally, I find that I can still have meetings. I can still communicate. There's a different sort of energy that I get in those interactions. But if I really need to do some heads down focused work, that's best in the morning. Uh, and I've really taken to trying to protect that time. So starting my day, being purposeful about how and when I'm starting. And then it's I have a cup of coffee, I have some music, and I just kind of try and dial in. One of the tactics that I've picked up from other folks is ending the day by setting the to-do list for the next morning. So if I'm working on a particular feature or if I'm halfway through something, I'll take a step back and rather than just kind of walking away at that moment, take a step back and summarize for tomorrow me 
how do I get back into this work? What's the the piece that I'm currently engaged with? This is all the more true on a Friday when it's like going into Monday and I'm, the weekend's going to wipe anything out of my mind. So trying to sort of pay it forward to myself and either leave a checklist of items or a failing test. I think we've talked about this before, the Ernest Hemingway approach of walking away in the middle of a paragraph so that you have almost the momentum of that previous work that can pick you back up. But yeah, I think those are the core ideas. Was there anything else or what are the sort of things that stand out in your mind around this? Yeah, those were some of the suggestions that you'd mentioned that I really appreciated. I really like the idea of scheduling social collaboration more for the afternoon time. That works very well for me. I find that in the morning, I tend to be very focused. I know what I want to get done. And I like that heads down time versus the afternoon. I may feel a bit more tired, a little more sluggish. And so then I find if it's pairing, if it's having meetings, that feels better for the afternoon because it's easier for me to be engaged with other people around. And I love the ending on a to-do list or ending with a failing test. That works really well for me as well. There's someone that I used to work with that also taught me a similar habit where at the end of each day, they would write down sort of like what progress they had made, what progress they felt was still left, sort of what risks were still present for the rest of the work to get completed because they took the estimation portion very seriously. Not that they felt like they had to be exact, but the honesty and the communication of saying this is where I'm at and then notifying the team. And so I would watch them do that at the end of each day and then they would review it in the morning. I found that really helpful. So that is something that I've done as well. I did poke a little bit into deep work, but it wasn't the actual book. I was reading some other summaries that people have provided on that book and some of the talking points that they have. And one of the ones that caught my attention is attention residue. Is that a phrase that you've heard or read about? Oh, I don't think so, but I'm, I'm intrigued. I believe it's referenced in the book. At least I saw it referenced in an article that was then talking about that particular book. But there's a paper that's titled, Why Is It So Hard to Do My Work? And it's written by Sophie Leroy, who's a business school professor at the University of Minnesota, where she observed that people need to stop thinking about one task in order to fully transition their attention and perform well on another Yet results indicate it is difficult for people to transition their attention away from an unfinished task, and therefore their subsequent task performance alters. So essentially, by jumping from task to task, it becomes impossible to give each task our full attention. And that is something that I feel deeply that I, I'm really not guilty of, but something I'm very aware of, where I'm still holding on to a previous task. Even when we're hopping into like podcast mode, it takes me a little bit, I have to take that moment to reset or otherwise I realize when I'm coming into a podcast and I still have too many other thoughts that are bouncing around. So that's something that's really, I just hadn't heard that phrase, attention residue, and I just love it. And one suggestion that Sophie provides is that time pressure while finishing a prior task is often needed to disengage from the first task and then thus move to the next one, which I do find really helpful. Because again, going back to podcasting, I know if we're about to chat in like 30 minutes, I know I've got 30 minutes to focus and get some work done and prepare and then go into conversation mode. I've definitely experienced that and having a phrase for it seems really useful. Attention residue feels like it really nicely captures that idea. Um, that is definitely something that I felt. And mostly what I'll do for myself in that is if I recognize that I need to transition away from something, I've found over the years that I need to somehow button that up. I need to like make it safe and tell my brain, don't worry, you don't need to hold on to this anymore. We've put it in a safe place. We'll come back to it. And so like writing up the notes or saying, 
I will often just throw random things into like the current file that I'm working on in comments or things like that. Like I'm reading a particular post on the internet. I will grab the URL of that and I will drop it in as a comment into the file that I'm working on because I know via Git and via code review, I'm not going to accidentally leak that into the source or if I do, it's a comment, whatever. But that's a way for me to capture it. And I don't know about you, but I am definitely the sort of person that needs to clear out all the tabs at the end of the day. That's an important thing for me. I understand that others have different approaches and I totally get that. My natural inclination would be to collect all of the tabs in the universe, just have one tab for every single web page on the internet. But you can't have that many tabs, it turns out. So zero is the number that I fall back to as the alternative since infinity is not a real option. That idea of buttoning things up, uh, similar to what I was saying of in the morning, I like to sort of have a clear workspace and be able to just dive into the work. And then sort of as I go, I create a mess, I expand, I'm doing research, etc. And often in the afternoon, I'll use that time to sort of contract back down. So filter through and be like, I opened five tabs for this. But you know what, those two I've read, there's nothing interesting, but these three are still good. So let's note them somewhere. Let's update a Trello card. Let's move this thing along. And I end up doing more of the project management tasks in the afternoon, because I find it's useful to help sort of put that attention residue mind at bay. Be like, no, no, it's okay. I know I made a mess, but I cleaned it up mostly. And I've communicated things. And tomorrow I'll be able to come back to this and be able to dive right back into the work. So I've definitely sort of built up little workflows around that. I'm with you where I also close out all of my tabs because I want to come back to a clean workspace because I find that when I come back to that clean workspace, I'm forced to think about, okay, what do I what do I need to do? What's today's agenda? What am I going to work on? Versus if I have a bunch of things open, then my first task is trying to recall why was this important and do I need to do something with this? And I don't want to start that way. But yet that feels a little bit in conflict with the idea of the Ernest Hemingway advice of leaving in the middle of a paragraph. So then I could see how people approach this. Well, if I leave some tabs open, that's my version of like ending the day in the middle of a paragraph and I know where to come back. But I just know for me, I'm not going to remember why I thought that tab was important. So it's just easier for me to close it all out. Speaking along this note, I won't put you on the spot for today, but you have also given me some amazing email management advice. There was one time where I think I was going on a rant about email and just managing all of it. And you wrote me back a very thorough email that gave me some really great advice on how you approach email. So in a future episode, I'm going to implore you to talk further about that because you've got some great tips there. I feel like I sound like the coolest person in the world that after we had a conversation about email, I sent you a lengthy email about <laughs> how to manage your inbox. So uh, sorry if that was, I think it was a thing that you wanted. I think you expressed that rather than me being like, let me tell you about email. But yeah, happy to share those. I'm interested to see if the audience is also interested. So folks, let us know in Twitter or other places and things. But uh, yeah, Seth will probably keep us honest and uh, bring that back up at some point in the future. Yeah, no, it was a very appreciated email. I'm someone that rails against it so much. I appreciate it uh, so much, too, as a developer, because it's such a great way to communicate with people. But I rail so much against just the noise that it creates, which then kind of segues a bit nicely along the noise into the idea of concentration. And I'm curious if you have any tips on when it comes to maintaining focus and having that deep concentration on a task. One, how do you get there? Two, do you have any like tips that get you in that right mindset? I have a few practices, but I'm, I'm curious what you do. It's interesting as you listed some of the other things and you brought this topic up, like I have a bunch to say about working effectively and productivity and whatnot, because I feel like this particular facet of it is an area where I'm terrible. I will often or almost always have Slack open and visible. And there's a certain FOMO is probably the closest idea, but I, I want to make sure I'm responsive and that if anything happens, I want to respond to it very quickly. And the idea of just fully disconnecting is difficult for me. I've also found, I think this is true. I tell myself this is true, that I am 
able to sort of keep a portion of my attention on that, but still maintain connectedness to the work at hand. That's probably a lie that I'm telling myself just to make myself feel better. But I've definitely heard of other folks where if Slack is open, it's a complete distraction and they can't focus on their work. I don't seem to have that. That said, I think the core thing that I will do is if I have something, again, I'll try and break it down and sort of write a a mini checklist. So if it's like, all right, I, I need to build out this admin page. Okay, well, what does that actually look like? Break down the work into a couple of pieces so that I can dive into the one thing. And then I'll actually do almost like a physical reset. I'll walk away, probably get a seltzer or something like that, come back, and ideally have like a song ready to go, have the work ready and defined, and then try and engage completely with that. But I only do that sometimes. And arguably, this is the the aspect of my work that I do more organically than purposefully. But I'm interested, what are, what are your pointed workflow tips here? Yeah, there are a couple of things that I do that help me in terms of maintaining or creating that mode for focus. I also I'm with you where I do leave Slack open all the time. I do typically have it hidden. So I'm only going to really notice it if someone messages me directly, or if they ping me, and then I'll check it then. So I feel fairly good where I can leave it open all the time. But it's not a huge source of distraction for me. I can certainly understand if that's not true for everybody else. And I think one of the reasons that this topic is on my mind lately is because I've noticed as I'm having conversations with other developers, a number of people will comment that they're constantly striving for like, how do I have better focus? How do I have better concentration? And part of that could be just from a lot of that bubbling out of 2020, where everybody is going through so much with the pandemic and everything that is happening in the world. So we also have a lot of important priorities that are also asking for our attention and demanding and rightfully so deserve our attention. So that is a theme that I feel like I've had in a number of just conversations with friends and also in one-on-ones. And so then thinking through like, well, then how do you work on that focus and what tips and tricks are you using? One of the tricks that I use, I learned from Brian Tingren because he'd mentioned that he will often listen to podcasts while he's working because just having that sort of conversation helps him. That doesn't work for me. I can't listen to podcasts while I'm working. It's too distracting. But I will listen to Headspace or anything else. So uh, Headspace, I found it, even though they are talking a bit at times, it is soft enough and not important that I can really just let it be there. It's also a very positive vibe. So I'll use Headspace a lot of times to get me that sort of like focus state and tune out the rest of the world. One of the other things that I've done is I've also looked for ways to increase attention stamina. So meditation is one of those where it will help me improve my concentration abilities, as it will help me acknowledge distracting thoughts and let those go. Some of the other ones are like you said, where it could be breaking down the task I'm about to do and then choosing the smallest thing and then working at it from that angle. The other one it may sound a little cheesy, but it's just being nice to myself because there's a lot of things that are competing for our attention in the world. And some days are going to be harder than others. And instead of beating myself up and be like, oh, why can't I focus today? Just acknowledging that this is a muscle. It is a skill. It's something that we have to practice. And some days are going to be harder than others. And then just finding the little small habits that will help me regain focus when I do lose it, but also not wasting time beating myself up for losing that focus. It's interesting that you bring up meditation. I've on and off meditated a handful of times, but never really gotten to the point that I've made it a continuous practice. But the few times that I've done it, there's so much value that I've gotten from it. And particularly that sort of framing of we're not perfect. Meditation isn't meant to be you have a still mind. It's meant to experience when your mind starts to wander and then gently pull it back, not yell at yourself and say like, why, why can't you focus? But instead, just recognize that and then gently bring it back. And that idea of it being almost like exercise, like physical exercise, but for your mind feels like it is an excellent parallel and yeah, I'm continually in my life. Yeah, I should meditate more. That feels true. 
So here we are, another moment in my life where I'm going to say, oh, I should definitely meditate more. Actually, looping back to some of the other things you mentioned, I've not thought of listening to Headspace or other sort of guided talk sort of content before. That sounds like it could be really interesting. The other things that I know of in that space, uh, Brain.fm is one of them, which is functional music to improve focus in 15 minutes. As far as I understand, I've actually not used it, but my wife uses and loves it. And it's sort of atmospheric music to provide sort of geared towards encouraging focus. I similarly have a number of more instrumental playlists that I found work for me. And there's like, a certain BPM. Uh, I'm trying to like figure out what it is because there does seem to be a type of music that is really ideal. And I'll notice as I'm listening to a song that I'm just like, oh, I'm kind of this somehow is really locking me in and I want to understand it. Like, I think there's something special about this type of music, but I can't figure out what it is. So I'll have to figure that out someday. Oh, that's interesting. Because now that you mention it, that rings true for me as well. Like there's definitely songs, I think it's the higher pitch songs. I, I can't listen to those. They do have to have like a deeper rhythm to them for otherwise I find like the higher pitch, I guess, distracting. It just calls my attention. But I hadn't really thought about it in that way of like, there's that certain like key music that's going to work for us in terms of helping us find focus. It's interesting. I've definitely heard folks who can't listen to music with lyrics when they're working because the lyrics will be distracting. That's not something that I've experienced. Uh, but the particular type of music that works really well for me, I have a playlist called Double Tones. That is where I capture these. And they're basically songs where there's like a driving beat and then a secondary like doubling of that beat over the top. And so I'll notice as I'm listening to them, like my head will just start to bop or I'll like move with the music a little bit, but very subconsciously. And there's something about it. Like I, I like the up because it's got a little more energy, but then I've got the more steady sort of cadence to it. And I don't know what it is, but it just works really well. And I found that when I really want to lean in and focus, I can put on that playlist and then I'll just kind of like hyper focus and zone into the work at hand. And so there's some magic in that that I would love to understand and then find more of this music. It's been a long time since we've been in an office together, but yeah, you are someone that bobs along to your music whenever we were sitting next to each other. That's cool because like you, like I can tell like when you were in the groove and like just jamming out. <laughs> in the groove, jamming out. That's me. That's the Chris Toomey story right there. <laughs> Along the lines of meditation, something that I, I do as well is uh, visualization. And these aren't practices that I do all the time. I'll be honest. I have those SOS moments of where I'm like, I'm, I'm realized I'm like, oh, I need meditation or visualization, something to help me calm down and focus. It's not something that I have really done a great job of building into my daily practice. But the visualization portion is really interesting because I found on the days that I do that, where I think through my day, what I'm going to get done, what it's going to look like, how it's going to go, sets me in a very positive space. Because I think about everything going really well. I don't think about how things are going to go terribly wrong. I just think about this is going to be fine and this is how it's going to work. And, and that sets me up for a really nice day. And I find that it just flows more like I've sort of set this expectation of like, this is how the day is going to go. So then it sets that sort of like positive productivity mode for when I've already thought about how my day is going to work out. And then the other one, because the concentration effort is an effort, and it is essentially a skill that we're building and not a physical muscle, but the metaphorical muscle that we're working on strengthening, is I schedule distraction time for myself. So at the end of the day, then I'll give myself however much time I want and be like, okay, yeah, like run free, like do whatever you want, check Twitter, check all the things, like scroll through Instagram. And then I find that really helpful too. 
yeah, I think having the the structured breaks in the day is super useful. And it's interesting. There's a something from my work now that works really well, which is I exercise at lunch every day, which is a new thing that because I'm home, that's just sort of an option. And so having that break in the middle of the day, especially it being some sort of physical activity, that works really well. And I go through that and then I take a shower and I come back to the work. And so I'm almost like doing a full reset then. So my morning sequence happens and that's hopefully some good heads down work and then go exercise and then come back. Uh, and then I don't have this as much anymore. But when we were all in the office at ThoughtBot, coffee walk was a very common thing. And so that was at 3 p.m. Everybody gathers and go for a walk around the common, potentially get coffee. Not necessarily. In fact, I would say that was a rarity. But that idea of just some physical motion, just sort of shake things up. And then I noticed there were so many times where I would go on a coffee walk and I would come back and the answer to whatever hard problem that I had been struggling with was just in my head now. I just found it on the walk. And it's an amazing thing and the amount of times that it happened was really impressive and so it's actually something that i I miss now both in terms of the physical activity and then the social connection that it represented but um you know trade-offs and complexities of the modern day there's something about those healthy habits that i find so hard like coffee walks i love them so much but it often took someone coming directly to me to be like steph we're gonna go on a coffee walk get up and it took that encouragement from someone to get me to interrupt what I was doing and go for that walk because I've noticed the more stubborn I get about something, the more I need that break (laughs) because my brain is just in that mode of like, I can fix this. And that's exactly when I need to walk away. I'm going to power through. I do remember many a time asking you if you wanted to go on a coffee walk and the answer being, "Mm, no, I think I'm going to stay here and and continue on with what I'm doing. So it's interesting now to hear this additional context later on that... uh, that maybe that wasn't your best choice or your most honest choice. No, I mean, it was the most honest, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it probably wasn't the best choice in terms of just healthiness and also that sort of reset to then approach something with fresh eyes. But it's just hard. It's hard to pick the healthy habits. It really is. I also personally struggle with the when you're sitting at a computer, that's sort of visibly, quote unquote, the work happening. But so much of it, like going for a walk, often that's where I did the thinking. And then the actual clacking on a keyboard, while it sounds very nice on my mechanical keyboard, is not the actual work getting done. Figuring out the answer is the hard part. And sometimes that has to happen sitting at a desk, but often it doesn't. And there's a style of thinking and a kind of problem solving that naturally can happen away from the desk. But I'm also sensitive to wanting to make sure that I'm obviously putting in the work and how to balance that. I've definitely had that conversation of, I don't know, should I go for a walk right now? No, I should probably power through. And I think almost always the correct answer is go for a walk, but it's hard to continually make that choice because sitting at the desk, even if you know that you're just kind of digging in on the same bunch of bad ideas that you've been dug in on all day, feels like the correct thing, feels like the responsible answer. And it's one of those that I constantly have to like kind of reteach my brain. No, no, no. Remember all of those times that the answer was out on the walk? Go for the walk. I like that phrasing, how it feels like that responsible answer of like, no, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to power through and get this done versus I'm going to get up and do the healthier thing. And I say healthier. I think it's healthier. I don't think that's too judgy of me to say, but of taking that course of action, of recognizing the creative space that's important. Because that's something else that I saw that was mentioned in that blog post that was providing a bit of a summary about the book Deep Work is that Cal Newport recommends focusing on a single task until that task is done. So if you have 10 emails to write, then block off time and write all of your emails. If you have a presentation to write, sequester yourself until you're done. And I want to say, yes, 
but uh, I have a little bit of a bone to pick with that one. I love the, if you have like email, something to focus on, avoid multitasking. Totally love that suggestion. The idea of sequestering yourself until you're done with something, that's where I get back into, I'm like, well, but I need these like healthy, like I'm going to call them creative breaks because then I find really helpful nuggets of knowledge either from somebody else or my brain pulls it out of who knows where. And then that helps me contribute to that presentation that I'm writing. So I find it very helpful to actually start something, maybe have an outline, but then walk away from it for a while and then come back to it. I don't know if Cal Newport's going to listen to this and then disagree with me. <laughs> He's going to write you a strongly worded letter. Uh, but I, I definitely share your thinking there. Often, if I have to do a piece of work, it can be somewhat daunting. And if I think about just the whole thing, I got to build out the whole admin, that's too much. And so giving myself permission to do a crappy first draft is a phrase that we throw around in my household. It doesn't need to be good. It frankly shouldn't be good. Give yourself permission to just start, to just break ground on the thing. And then almost inevitably, you end up sort of, oh, now that I'm doing it, you know what, I'm, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to flow with that. But that version of it doesn't need to be perfect is important to me. And then I don't feel the need to finish things because so much, especially in our work, so much of it is kind of ambiguous. And I'm like, I don't know how long it's going to take me to build that. I got to start building it and then I'll find it out. I wish software were more of a science than an art, but really blends that line pretty well. And so the idea that I have to finish something is burdensome and I think really can lend to that. Like, no, I'm just going to dig in and power through when, again, often the right thing is just to back away and, and go for a walk. I also, my understanding is Cal Newport is a computer science professor, researcher. He writes a lot of papers, writes research grants, things like that. And I may be misrepresenting this here, but my understanding is that that's more his background and the sort of work that he's doing. And there's less collaborative elements, potentially. So in those cases, like if you're an author, then the thing is to just sit down and grind. That's the answer. You just got to show up and write the pages, write the words, edit, whatever it is. I'm oversimplifying, of course, but when I think about our work, it often involves elements of collaboration. So the idea that you can just sequester yourself for eight hours and grind isn't actually representative of the work that we do. There are more touch points and interactions and collaborative things, but I think it's useful to sort of frame the recommendations from someone where I think there's really great elements of deep work, but understanding that that's the context from which he talked about that. It's very similar to Getting Things Done, which is one of the most popular books in the sort of personal productivity space. But it was written by this guy, David Allen, who did a lot of consulting for high-level CEOs and salespeople and executives who spent a lot of time on their phones or in their cars driving between sales meetings. So there's a lot of recommendations about like, oh, and organize your work by context so that when you are in your car with a phone, you can make phone calls because you have that list. When you're at the office, do this thing. And I'm like, I am literally 100% of my time with my computer. That's the only thing that there is. I have full internet and I have big computer. And so there's no differentiation there. And whereas I found a ton of value in getting things done and have read that and enjoyed it, I do contextualize it a little bit. I'm like, yeah, but I'm not a salesperson driving between different meetings. So some of this does not apply to me. Yeah, that's a great point in providing extra context and the more like collaboration space versus if you have that ability or if it works where you can sequester yourself to get stuff done. I love that book, Getting Things Done by David Allen. That's something that I read back in the day that I'd love to revisit because it was it was also really helpful for me. And I do think there is a yes and opportunity here where I was saying yes, but in terms of the sequestering yourself and getting things done and the yes and would be yes and define your own version of done. 
because for us, your version of done would be that small step as you were just highlighting. Or since we are in a more collaborative environment, then our done will also include helping others. And so we have our own work, but done will also be reviewing work for others, pushing that along, unblocking. So I think that's really great context that you added. So thanks for going on that adventure with me. On that note, shall we wrap up? Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeched.fm. The show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, let us know, as one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or review in iTunes. If you have feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bikeshed on Twitter, and I'm at Chris Toomey. And I'm at S. Vicari. Or you can email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.